Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. He had his records in front of him, and I said, Doctor, how much was he on in, you know, in uh, 2012? How much was he on in 2011? What was the average daily dose? And he, he didn't answer it. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I'm good. I wanted to let you know that I checked our podcast and we are uh, very, very close to 50,000 downloads, which uh, I'm excited to see if we can get past that. Yeah, that's very exciting. I mean, we'll get past that if I have to do it myself, Steve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even if you have to we're download it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're very close. We're very close. I think we're less than, uh, I mean, less than 200 uh, downloads to 50,000. So uh, hopefully we'll be there within a day or two. Um, very cool. But uh, everything's well in, in Atlanta? I think so. I haven't been outside in a few days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you what, like outside it was a lot. I don't know when this episode will air, but... Um, you know, our, our shelter in place order expired and it was, a, this weekend looked a lot more like normal Midtown Atlanta from what I could see, yeah. but, uh, I stayed home. So. Yeah, it's definitely, you're definitely seeing a lot more people out in Georgia and, uh, and uh, our two guests today, uh, are from, uh, from Missouri and I haven't heard how Missouri's doing, but let me introduce John Simon. John is a founding partner of the Simon Law Firm PC in St. Louis. Uh, and John, uh, you have been named the St. Louis Lawyer of the Year uh, for Medical Malpractice uh, by Best Lawyer. Uh, you're a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers. Uh, and for two consecutive years, you had the highest verdict in Missouri. Uh, you're a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates, a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, and uh, <clears throat> have been named one of the top 10 attorneys in Missouri and Kansas by super lawyers since 2009. And then what I found interesting, John, is that you're both uh, a graduate undergrad and law school, and you're an adjunct professor at the St. Louis University School of Law. And I think that's interesting based on uh, the case that we're going to talk about and who the defendant was. Uh, you obviously have a close relationship with uh, St. Louis University, uh, which Sued is one of the, <laughs> right, which was which is one of one of the defendants in this case. And you know, it's 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 interesting. We can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Steve, with how that how that came out, we brought that up in Vordier in in the case, and uh, you know, I think to Tim, did we draw we did draw objections to it? I think we did, but uh, they objected to you talking about your personal information. But um, yeah, you definitely brought it out in Vordier. Uh, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. You want to interview? Yes, you can. We can get into it now. But one of the things, one of the issues that we were dealing with was St. Louis University has a very good reputation in the St. Louis community. And, um, you know, the doctor was employed by St. Louis U. St. Louis U was the, uh, you know, primary defendant. And, you know, we needed to talk about that in the board dire to get people, right. you know, basically tell everybody, look, uh, we're not here saying it's, uh, you know, the doctor is a bad doctor, that the hospital, you know, St. Louis U, uh, you know, is a, is a good, solid, you know, citizen in our community, well-respected. People have doctors there. And that's one of the things that I brought up was, you know, I've been teaching there for 20 years. You know, I'm an adjunct professor and uh, went there undergrad, went there to you know law school. But, uh, you know, the purpose was to, uh, you know, start talking about the fact that, you know, they can still consider a judgment against St. Louis University, even though 
you know, they, they might may high or hold higher high opinions of them. So. Right. That's, a, that's actually how John and I met. He was teaching trial advocacy at SLU and I went to law school at SLU. Okay. And so you, you both are from there. In the, yeah. In the, <laughs> so he was teaching, I was his student and I must have, I, I don't know, tricked him or done something right because at the end of the <laughs> class, you asked me to go work. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Well, you must have been one of the better students, then I would have to say that. I, I, will, I will say that, absolutely. One of yeah. the best students I've ever taught. And that's got to be a great way to recruit for your law firm, John, is when you know you go teach some students and, and pick out the one or two best ones and ha- bring them over to the firm. Absolutely. That works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, let me go ahead instead and... Of, it, instead of a, a you know, 15, 30-minute or an hour interview, you get to spend an entire semester with, with, this, with somebody. And right. uh, it does. It makes a makes a difference. Now, I don't know if Tim yeah. regrets it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You have to ask him. You ask him that off the record, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. He did, well, he didn't know he was also doing a job interview while taking right, the class. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me go ahead and introduce your partner, Tim. Cronin, uh, who tried this case with you. Uh, Tim uh, has been practicing in medical malpractice, product liability, trucking, premises law, and anything that involves catastrophic injury, and has had multiple verdicts over $10 million, has been named uh, as one of the best lawyers in America, and has been named uh, as a rising star in Missouri and Kansas from, from for the last six years, it looks like. So, uh, so Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's uh, fantastic to have you guys on. Um, and then let me just go ahead and introduce the case that we've been uh, that we've been sort of bouncing around about. But this case was named uh, Brian and Michelle Kuhn versus Dr. Henry Walden in St. Louis University. It was tried in St. Louis in 2016, and the result of the case was a. Uh, $1.4 million verdict for Brian Kuhn, uh, $1.2 million verdict for Michelle Kuhn, and then a punitive damages verdict of $15 million for a total verdict of $17.6 million against Dr. Walden and St. Louis University. And then there was an apportionment finding uh, where it found that uh, Dr. Walden and St. Louis University were 67% uh, responsible. Uh, But the basics of the case was that uh, Brian... Uh, had suffered uh, from some back pain and um, and spine pain and uh, went to Dr. Walden. And Dr. Walden in 2008 basically started prescribing uh, a large amount of um, opioid medication, uh, oxycontin, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and uh, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it, but uh, I saw in the opening uh, that you broke it down, uh, Tim, where basically you showed that uh, by May of 2012, he had uh, uh, prescribed 600 pills of 15 milligram oxycodone, 240 pills of 60 milligram oxycontin, and 180 pills of hydrocodone uh, just in one month. And basically, uh, and I'll let you guys get into talking about what morphine equivalent dose means, but by 2012, uh, he was getting a morphine equivalent dose of 1,500 milligrams per day, I think. Is that right? Per day? Um, yeah. When they're, when they're basically, this, the standard of care was that you weren't supposed to give more than 100 milligrams a day for a period of 90 days uh, at the longest. Uh, and over this four-year period, uh, 
Dr. Walden had prescribed 37,000 pills of opiate medication uh, for um, uh, Brian Kuhn. And uh, obviously, these are highly addictive uh, drugs. And, uh, and he became addicted. Uh, and it affected every part of his life. Uh, it affected his marriage, affected his relationship with his, his child, uh, and um, also covered up, you know, something that was going on with his spine and caught with his spine and caused him to have even further damage to his spine until basically in 2012, he uh, enters himself into a rehabilitation program. And along with his wife is able to get free of his addiction. But uh, after going through just tremendous withdrawals and, and terrible suffering from uh, the massive amount of uh, opiate medication uh, that he was on. So, um, so you obviously did a fan permanent. I just want to end suffering permanent yeah. consequences. I'm sure we'll talk about it as a, you know, as a result of, of what he went through. Right. Exactly. Anyway, yeah, and we absolutely we'll get to talk about that when we talk about the damages, but, but basically, uh, just, um, a, a tremendous amount of, of opiate medication and, um, and, and, uh, you know, everything that happens when you're uh, uh, on high dose opioids and um, get addicted to that. And uh, just a just a really uh, tragic case. And, and it's really amazing that uh, that Brian was able to pull through this without uh, without dying. Um, and so, uh, again, just a fantastic job. So let me let me first just congratulate both of you on on a fantastic job in the trial. But um, I, I wanted to start off by talking about, um, you know, when you take on a case like this, there's got to be a certain amount of um, thought that maybe Brian is at least somewhat to blame for his addiction. And, I'm, and I saw that you addressed that in, in your opening and your closing uh, and, and hit that head on. But can you just talk a little bit about that, about the, the addiction side of it and, uh, and how you... Uh, uh, handled that at trial? Uh, yeah. So, you know, in the beginning of this case, we had concerns about the potential value of it and the chance of success. First, I, nobody had really been doing this, suing doctors for prescribing opioids. And this is when we first took it on, this is before, you know, it all exploded in the media. Um, and then during the course of the case, we, we did focus groups and it confirmed what we suspected could be problems with the jury, which is, um, you know, a big part of their defense was these are pills that our client was asking for. Uh, every time he got a new script, if it was early, it's because he was asking to get that script. He wanted them. He said they were helping him. And, you know, when he went to rehab, he wrote, I, you know, I take responsibility for, for causing this to myself. And that, that came in. So, uh, we knew we were going to have that problem, and it was John did voir dire, and it was the heart of his voir dire was getting down to that question: Who thinks, um, you know, who's more responsible for your medical care, your doctors or you? And then specifically, you know, in a situation like this, who's going to give any money to somebody when your damages are I'm a drug addict? Um, and those are the only damages we had. I mean, we didn't, he kept his job in the parks department the whole time. We weren't submitting medical bills. So we had to focus on that for the whole case, but it really started in Guadir with John. Yeah. And uh, you know, one of the things, you know, as Tim mentioned, we, we, we did, I think we did 
probably three online focus groups. And we always, you know, in, in addition to presenting the case, we always uh, ask, you know, questions that we think might, might help us with some more dire questions. And one of the, one of the questions that we asked is exactly what Tim was talking about. We asked, uh, you know, about addiction specifically, who thought addiction was more of a medical condition versus, you know, a lapse in moral judgment or, you know, poor, poor discipline. Uh, and the, the correlation between that answer and what, what the individual found for us or against us was incredible. It was like 90%. So in other words, what we found in the, in the, on, on the online focus groups was that, you know, about whoever, whoever answered the question that they thought addiction was more of a medical problem or a medical condition versus poor individual judgment, that person was probably 90% likely to side with us on liability. And, and the opposite was true. The same with being able to trust your doctor. Now, even with that said, everybody was going to, was, was, you know, going to hit our client with some comparative fault. I mean, very, very few people right. were just going to let them walk and say, no, you know, and so what we decided to do is embrace it. And just take the position. Look, there's some there's some responsibility here, and and Brian's here telling you he is responsible, and you determine what that you know what percentage that is. Yeah, and so I, I we 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 hinted to that in opening and close, and didn't say, look, he he's not here saying he's completely blameless. In fact, the focus groups we did, I mean, we there were three of them, and we probably had hundreds of people over those three, and if you averaged them out the average amount of fault that was going to Brian ended up being exactly what the jury did, 33%. Um, and so when Brian was on the stand, he was very remorseful and said, look, you know, I take, I, I was in the throes of addiction. I, I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, but of course I take some responsibility for that. Um, but also I, I trusted my doctor. And so that was kind of his fallback answer to any time they tried to attack him was, look, I totally hear what you're saying. I trusted my doctor. I thought he had my best interests at heart. Um, and then we we hammered their experts with those questions of, look, it, whose responsibility is it to make sure the standard of care is followed? Is it the patients or it's the doctors? And every one of them, all the different ways we asked it said, yeah, it's the doctors. Even if the patient is you know, doing something he shouldn't be doing, it's the doctor's responsibility to make sure the standard of care is followed. And, you know, I think one of the things that we did with the, the, in the first focus group, the online focus group, we, we took a, a, you know, a, a tougher position on the comparative fault. In other words, the first time, I think, Tim, the first time we presented it, we didn't accept any responsibility at all for our client. We came in and said, this is totally the doctor's fault. You know, a, a script only gets written by a doctor. It's not up to the patient. And then, and then you know, we, we didn't do so well. And the next time we ran it, we changed the script to accept responsibility. And by accepting responsibility, the, the, the percentage of, of wins went up. It went up significantly. Right. right. We won and the, and the number often by, by taking responsibility. Right. Well, and because that's what juries love. And it puts you in the great position of being able to put the question to the doctor and to St. Louis University whether or not they're willing to take any responsibility. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob 
or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. Um, I had a question about, especially with you guys focus grouping this. Um, I'm interested. We've talked about this, this on this show before about people learning more about addiction now. And certainly with the opioid crisis, people learning a lot more now than they knew then. But I'm curious, especially when you were focus grouping this with a lot of folks, t- speaking about how many, you know, the correlation that you noticed with um, potential jurors who thought of addiction as a medical condition versus a willpower issue or something else. I'm wondering what kind of percentage or breakdown you saw as far as how many people thought it was a medical condition versus how many people thought it was a willpower. You know, in other words, did more people think it was a medical condition? Are you seeing that more people are, are recognizing that? You know, I think I, we, I'm sorry. Yes. We, we benefited, I think, quite a bit from the environment in which we tried the case. Because we were a couple months into this exploding in the media. Uh, I mean, there were some people who um, just, you know, maybe maybe it's based on personal experience or family experience. Uh, They, you know, maybe they knew somebody who had an addiction problem and they were, you know, upset at them and they, they refused to believe it wasn't their fault. There were some people that were just like, look, it is a willpower issue and you are just deciding you don't care about how it hurts you and other people. And so we had to identify those people. But I think there were less of them both in our venue and by the time we were trying this than we might have found a few years before. Yeah, and I think one of the things when we asked, you know, who here knows somebody, a close friend, family member who has an addiction problem, and about every hand in the room went up. I think we had, I don't know, we had 100 people maybe in the room, 90 or whatever. And There wasn't a person hardly in that room that didn't know somebody who was close to them that wasn't fighting some type of addiction, whether it's, you know, drugs, alcohol, opioids. But, you know, I think after the first, we did Vordire for, I think we we took a full day for the plaintiffs Vordire pretty much. And I think we were able to identify about 25 or 26 people who 
you know, answered that question and said, we, we don't think it's a medical condition. We think it's a matter of poor choices and morals. And what that told us is at, at the get go, you know, we had a good 25%, 30% of the group who under no circumstance did, did we think they would ever find for our client. And so really the challenge came, well, how do you get them off? You know, how do you get 25 people off for cause? And one of the things, you know, I love finding a question that's, uh, you know, it's a get them off. It's an easy question that most people would, would, you know, would get themselves off. And the question was what Tim hit on earlier. And that is, it was another problem for us. And that was, even if you found in favor of the plaintiff, who here has some hesitancy or reluctance to award millions of dollars to a drug addict? Well, you know what, mm -hmm. anything, any amount of money. And we knew the answer to that question also was, Anybody asked that question is going to express some significant problem. You know, they're going to say, wait a minute, I, I would have some hesitation. That would affect my assessment of the damages. And we were able to, you know, we had already identified those, you know, members, you know, those uh, potential jurors who we knew from the questioning weren't going to go with us probably. And then the rest of the day was just spent trying to get, get them off. And we were, we were very, I think we got probably 22 out of the 26 off or something like that. So I think, yeah, that's great. you know, those, it wasn't, it wasn't to the point where everybody, I think today, I think if you try to take one of these cases today, it'd be an easier case. I think, uh, you know, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? I think people would know more, way more about it now. And uh, it's, you know, all the press that's come out, all of us has been, you know, fav not favorable to the addict, but at least it allows people to understand there's a problem. Um, but, you know, at the time, you know, it, we weren't there yet, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they did us a really big favor. We, so we had two experts. We had a Yale internal medicine doctor for standard of care. And then we had, um, John, what is Dr. Fitzgibbons? She's, she's a clinical psychologist, psychologist, right? Yeah. And she, you know, went through um, the DSM and said he has an opioid abuse disorder, but we did not have an addictionologist. And the defendants, as one of their experts, hired an addictionologist. And we just turned him into our expert. He was a really good, honest guy. Um, his name was Dr. Uh, Dr. Gunderson. And I, I just sat down with him and I talked to him about addiction. And he defined yeah. it for us. Uh, and then he took away all the heat and criticisms against our client because he came in and told the jury, look, for a long time in our country, our society's response to drug abuse has been to assume that people addicted to drugs are just morally flawed and lacking in willpower. And that's not true. And I, their expert was telling the jury, you shouldn't assume that's the case here. That's not true. It is a complex problem. An individual's willpower is compromised. It is a brain disease. It's not a moral or mental weakness, a chronic medical condition. So we had their expert explaining that part of our case for us after we'd already filtered out what we thought were the worst jurors on that issue for us. And I, I mean, it really proved our damages. He said it alters circuits in your brain, including, you know, mood, behavior control, all this stuff. And he just went and explained how it destroys lives. And I, I, I said, thank you at the, I was like, I don't know why yeah. they gave us this guy to come in. Yeah. Well, and that was one thing I, I thought I knew a lot about addiction, but one thing I don't think I fully realized um, when I was reading through the, the transcript that y'all sent us was that um, I knew addiction did things to pathways in the brain, but I, I did not realize how permanent 
those issues would be after he had successfully, which I, I was shocked he was even able to do considering how much medication he was being prescribed, but that, that he was successfully able to stop taking those medications. I didn't realize the degree to which that would affect him, his brain permanently. Yeah, they turned they turned him into a drug addict, lifelong, lifelong condition. Right. Yeah. Right. He still has cravings. And I mean, his wife, his wife's testimony might have been the most powerful testimony at the trial. Um, because she, you know, she went through all of this just right along with him, but with sober eyes. And so she was able to explain, look, he used to be just the sweetest man in the world, the man I fell in love with. And even after he got clean, he your brain doesn't go back. He still wasn't the person that she had met and fallen in love with. And even though he got clean, um, they split up. They're not together. This broke up their family. Right. They had, they'd had a little girl right at the beginning. And when he started getting opioids and his wife really explained what it put them through and how he was a changed person. And you know, that little girl's parents aren't together anymore because of it. And you know, if you think about it, uh, look at what the jury did with the consortium claim and the, and you know, Brian's claim and, and Michelle's claim. They, they awarded a, almost the same amount, you know, 1.4, 1.2. And, and you can see wh why they did that. I mean, going through this for six years, seven years, uh, you know, seeing it all sober and watching it, I think is a heck of a lot harder than, you know, Brian didn't remember big parts of it. He was so out of it all yeah. the time. He didn't even remember. So it's one when of he, when he, a lot harder on the family. When she, when Michelle took their daughter, Emily, to see Brian in the rehab facility. The first time he was really getting like getting, he, he, he'd gone through the worst of the withdrawals and starting to realize what his life had been. They went out to the yard and his daughter started running. Uh, and Brian didn't remember that his, he asked his wife, like how long has she been walking? And Michelle said two years. So, yeah. I mean, he just, it was just a blackout period. Wow. You know, Yvonne, you were you were talking about the the massive amounts. You know, the, and that's the thing that just we had some discussions in the office. You know, we were on the fence about whether to even you know go forward with the case. The medical records were just filled with things where he's you know lying to his doctor and he's saying it's helping him and he needs more. Everything was about getting more pills and more pills and more pills. And we were thinking, how is this? You know, how how is this going to present to a jury? And and. You know, the amounts is, is, I think, what carried the day, what, what at least answered that question for, for us, because it wasn't, you know, he's supposed to be 100 is the limit, and it was maybe 200 or 250. It was 1,500. And one of the, one right. of the stories that kind of put this in, in, into context, the, the expert that we used, terrific, terrific guy, you know, understood the issue and the problem. And I think we had two or three conversations with him, and we had sent him the pharmacy records and all the medical records. And he didn't know that, that Brian was still alive. We had we had several conversations with him. And he when, when he found out, he was like, he said, what? This guy's still alive? He, he couldn't believe that he was wow. still alive just, yeah. just based on the, the number of pills, you know? And, and he said, well, it, it's, it was like a, unbelievable. He just could not believe that a human being could be, could, you know, ingest that many pills and still be here to, you know, talk about it. John, yeah, do you remember how he described it the first time? Like how, how much Brian was given that convinced you to take the case? He, he described it as Brian's brain was literally marinating in narcotic analgesics. Yeah, it's, it's, and you know, the, the thing too is we, we, we looked at, we, at trial for trial, 
you know, we tried to think, you know, think up some good demonstratives about, you know, how to show just the, the amount and just the number of pills. We were, we were trying to get some kind of glass or jar or barrel and fill it up with, uh, with you know, what was it M&Ms or something that, you know, just to show the number of pills. Uh, it, it was just incredible. He would have to walk out of there with a bag full of pills each time. You know, 1,500 mm -hmm. is just insane. I mean, what? How many pills was he taking a day, Tim, at the, at the highest? At the end, 40 pills a day of opioids. And I mean, yeah. some of them, right, like there were 60 milligram pills. Yeah. I thought and that was, go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just going to say, you made a great point in the, in, in your, I can't remember if it's the opening or closing about how, you know, in a, in a day where you're basically, you know, awake for 16 to 18 hours and you're taking 40 pills. I mean, you're, con you're basically constantly taking pills and that's what drives your life. That's what drives everything that uh that, that uh, he's going through at that point in time yeah I'm, I, I, and he's taking three different types at once and he's trying to juggle these three different schedules with these three different pills throughout the day and look when you're on that much opioids you're not awake 16 hours a day right right yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not. right right i thought it was really effective how you all illustrated the amount, the amount of medication, the number of pills. Um, I thought one of the things that you brought up, I think in your opening, that I found really surprising too, was that I guess there were several times where he either couldn't get a refill or something, and so he would just get morphine for a few days. Right. Yeah. That, by the way, that wasn't documented in the medical records. So tell us about that. How did, how you, did you find that out? Yeah. The last, uh, so the, it was, what was it? A two week trial. And, you know, we had a heck of a time, a heck of a time getting records for whatever reason, you know, we, we, every time we'd see something and it would alert us to the fact something may be missing, we'd follow up and get it. We'd show up at a deposition. I remember I showed up at the defendant doctor's deposition and his, his file was three times as thick as mine. You know, we had been working on the case for six or eight months. So it was a battle. And, you know, we, we thought at least we had made every, we'd made every effort to get all of the records. And so, right, the, the last witness in the case was going to be the defendant doctor. They were going to put him on. And so what we did in the office, we had, we, we pulled all of the pharmaceutical records. And we, which had every scripts, script. Right, the scripts. And, and we compared those to what was in his records. And we, we figured out that his records showed like two thirds maybe of what was actually in the, you know, in the, in the pharmacy records. And one of the things was the morphine. And I knew that's what kind of caught my eye. I looked through them and looked through them. I had a couple of law clerks helping. We, we couldn't find, it was, it was in October of some year that he had given a morphine and, and it just wasn't, you know, it was in the pharmacy records, but it wasn't in the medical records. And so wow. we confronted him with that on the stand and the first thing we asked is, you know, it's federal law. You need to note any, you know, narcotic, Schedule II narcotic in your records. Not doing that, you know, is a felony. I think you can go to jail for not doing that. You can lose your, your, you know, your medical license. And he acknowledged those things on the stand, started getting kind of, you know, nervous about it. And then finally, when I handed him the records from that month and said, find it, you know, find the, the morphine in your records. Where's it at? And he flipped through it a little bit, flipped through it, got all, you know, kind of whacked out and then finally said, uh, all the records on here. So, <laughs> wow. You know, there were hundreds of scripts of records that we weren't given. And it's, it wasn't just the script, it's patient encounter information. And their wow. whole thing 
was like, Brian wasn't saying there's a problem. And we're like, well, right when you escalated to like over a thousand morphine equivalent dose, there's hundreds of scripts missing where you would have talked to him and we don't know what he's saying. Yeah. And nobody's ever, I mean, a drug addict, the only thing on his mind was getting more pills and not running out. That was it. I mean, for five, six years, the only thing he had on his mind was not running out of pills. And he's certainly, you know, not going to go into the doctor and, and, and say, these pills are really messing me up. And, you know, I, you know, he did early on a couple of times, but, uh, he, he said what somebody who's addicted to the medication, you, you, it's what you'd expect them to say. You know, he's an addict. He wants more. He's going to say whatever he needs to say to get more. And he, he testified right. at a trial. Yeah. So I, I want to uh, back up one second, make sure our listeners understand. So when you talk about these, you know, huge amounts of uh, opioids, you, you talk in uh, morphine equivalent dose. And so I want to give you a chance to explain that. But from what I could tell, in all the literature you had, and even the defendants sound like they agreed that the um, morphine equivalent dose that someone's supposed to get is 100 milligrams per day, not longer than 90 days. And I think there were some exceptions for somebody who was maybe going through cancer or um, you know, had some, some other condition that might be an exception to that. Um, and, and I think even the defendant doctor admitted that it's 120 milligrams a day, so not that far off. So, I mean, so first tell, tell us about the morphine equivalent dose, but then second, I mean, how, what was their defense? How do they, how do they explain that it's okay to give 1500, uh, So morphine equivalent is just to compare apples to apples. Right. Um, so you convert, you know, some, some opioids are one-to-one for morphine. They have the same strength, like one milligram of uh, hydrocodone, I think, is the same as one milligram of uh, morphine. But one milligram of oxycodone is equivalent to 1.5 milligrams of morphine. Okay. So he was getting different kinds. Um, and then, you know, fentanyl is much, much stronger. It's measured in micrograms. So there's a way to convert the micrograms to morphine equivalent milligrams. It's just so that you can compare apples to apples. And the doctor should be paying attention to the total amount of morphine equivalent opioids that the patient is given. And there's very easy conversion charts that are online. It's, it's very, very simple. Um, and, you know, as far as the amounts, in the first year, he went from 50 morphine equivalents. The following year, it quadrupled to 208. The following year, it nearly tripled to 545. The following year, it doubled to like almost 1,200. Until finally it was over 1500. And, you know, we had these, the lawyers basically tried to argue as, as, you know, defense attorneys kind of try to do in many med mal cases that like, there is no standard of care. And as long as the doctor's exercising his judgment, it's fine. And we had the CDC guidelines, but those had come out just the year of our trial. Those were not out during the four years Brian was getting his treatment. And our, our expert was saying, yeah, but that's like, that's what the basic standard of care was that's been in place forever. These drugs haven't changed. And we had different guidelines in different states that were all about 100. Like Washington had one from 2008. There was one in Oregon and Ohio. Um, but we even got the doc, Dr. Walden in our case to say, yeah, generally you shouldn't go over 120. But he and then their experts and their, their lawyers just said, yeah, that's true, but some people are different and some people need more and some people can tolerate more. 
And for Brian, he needed it to work. So for him, uh, it's okay. And look, this isn't, he's not one of the statistics. This isn't the opioid epidemic. He didn't die. We said, well, I mean, he lost four and a half years of his life and he put a gun in his mouth and almost killed himself before he went to rehab. So you shouldn't have to be a statistic to try to bring a case. So they really just said, look, there's exceptions if somebody has really bad pain. And our expert was saying, low back pain, you never get these at all. You shouldn't get them at all. The standard of care isn't 100, it's zero. You know, one of the things, too, that we we never really figured out, you know, you ask, I mean, it's a question you're asking. We ask, Mm -hmm. how did it get to that point? How did it get to 1,500, you know, morphine equivalent doses a a day? It's just a crazy amount. And I I really think that Dr. Walden just wasn't paying attention. He just, I mean... You know, what was happening is he had a client who I, I, I knew, he, he knew he was addicted. There's no question. And, you know, he kept calling. And, and I think rather than deal with it, deal with the addiction and get him help and get him in rehab, the, you know, the easier path was to put it off and just and write the script again. And what was happening is not just the number of pills were going up, but, but Brian was, was taking them faster than was prescribed. So he'd get a 30-day supply and then he'd get a refill in 15 days. So, you know, it's so you even even, you know, it's an excessive amount, but it didn't even take into account the fact that because he's, he's taken them in half the amount of time, the dosage is really twice as high. And it wasn't until we looked at the total number of pills in a month or in a year that you could really look and see what the what the average was. I remember it is at his deposition. We he didn't know. Yeah, I just said <laughs> I picked a month and I said, no. we, we knew this. We had done the, you know, the averages with the pills. He had his records in front of him. And I said, doctor. How much was he on in, you know, in uh, 2012? How much was he on in 2011? What was the average daily dose? And he, he didn't answer it. He really didn't know. You know, he saw the individual scripts that he'd written, you know, in his, in his records, but uh, he just really didn't pay attention. It was easier. It was just easier to write the, the, the script and, and put it off for another 30 days or so or 20 days. Right. So, uh, you know, one thing I was wondering, and, and uh, it looked like you might have sort of hinted at it during one of the arguments, but um, was there any sort of um, other motivation by either the hospital or, uh, or by the university or uh, Dr. Walden that, uh, I mean, is there any sort of monetary motivation to have somebody take higher doses of, of opioids um, or is it just carelessness? You know what? We didn't really see strong evidence of that. Uh, based on how he was paid, we we discovered that we got into that. Um, you know, you you could say the more you know the more patience he has, and the more times that he sees somebody, he makes a little bit more. But we couldn't find a direct correlation between the number of pills. You know, like a classic profit motive. You know, with the doctor, right. we have we have dozens of other cases in the office now where we see that, you know, like staring us in the face. But in this case, I, I think it was just, you know, he he was in over his head. I mean, you got You got to remember too. You know, these it's an internist. Okay. Right. And not a pain management doctor. And, and these, most of the doctors prescribing these things shouldn't be prescribing them in the first place. You know, it's really, it, it's, you know, they're, they're in over their head from the, from the beginning and then they get somebody addicted and, you know, you either address it and get them help or, or ignore it. And the only way to ignore it is um, just to keep writing. W- we mentioned a, a few times um, mm. just the opioid ac- epidemic itself, but it sounded like it was an issue at trial that defense had, lost or kind of lost in terms it's I was I wasn't sure exactly from the transcript but it sounded like maybe they didn't want you all to be able to reference the fact that there was an epidemic 
No, that was a pre that was a pretrial motion they filed. Um, the motion was denied, and every time we brought up the statistics or mentioned uh, that we were in the midst of an opioid epidemic, they objected every time. I mean, there was probably two hundred objections to it at trial. They objected every time. It was their number one issue on appeal, um, and we won that argument. I think rightfully so. The appellate court agreed with us that, I mean, not only is it relevant to punitive damages about the kind of risk you're creating, but how can you, how can you talk about what is safe and reasonable for a doctor to do without talking about the environment in which he's doing? And the medical community didn't first know about these problems when the rest of us started to hear about them. They knew these problems were escalating and getting worse since the late nineties. So, you know, and the, the SLU corporate rep and Dr. Walden admitted they knew about the escalating opioid problem since before 2008, which means right there, it's their knowledge it comes in. But even if we didn't have that, they brought in an expert that allowed us to put the whole opioid epidemic on trial um, right. because he was so intricately involved with it. He was a pain management doctor at another uh, at, at another um, institutional healthcare provider in the area. And I mean... He was in the pocket of every opioid manufacturer in the country. He had made millions and millions. I mean, he was one of the first doctors for Purdue Pharma that was going around telling other doctors prescribed opioids, they're safe, they're not addictive. Mm. And he had done it for every opioid manufacturing company that we can tell. And he'd also made millions testifying. And so we were able to get in with him, his direct involvement with that and how he he's not in a position to be able to un talk in an unbiased fashion about what safe opioid prescribing is um, at all. But even if we didn't talk about it, everybody in the room knew about it. The, right. The panel brought it up when John was doing voir dire before we ever mentioned it. John said this is a case about opioids. And one of the, well, it was a young man raised his hand and said, I think this is a much bigger problem than one case and started rattling off yeah. stats. So the jury, they knew about it. So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about DigitalLawMarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which 
without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital all marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, digital all marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644, or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I was wondering, was there ever any thought, and I realize you guys took this on, you know, early on in this whole crisis, but was there ever any thought of, of pursuing a products claim against the manufacturers? We, you know, we thought about it. There's, there's some problems with that. Often when a patient is getting these things for so long, um, they end up getting a mix of a lot of different things. And yeah. so, you know, if they just get Oxycontin from Purdue Pharma the whole time, that's that's probably a pretty good case, especially with Oxycontin or Purdue Pharma's involvement in spreading the untrue message that opioids aren't addictive and covering stuff up. Um, but if you have a mix of all these different ones, you're going to be suing five or six different major pharmaceutical companies. Right. Every one of them is going to have, you know, one of the biggest DC firms and one of the biggest Chicago firms. But more importantly, you have a causation problem. At what point did he become addicted? Uh, and, you know, how do you prove any one of them individually is on the hook for causation? Whereas if they're all getting prescribed by one healthcare provider and you have no collection problems from that healthcare provider, it's just a much cleaner, easier case. And I think the fault is more easily shown like that. That healthcare provider prescribed all of them. Yeah. And, you know, and really have a, a big problem, too, was the at some point, and it had to do with liability. I think it was Purdue Pharma. They changed their product insert to put you know, warnings and the warnings right. were fairly specific about dosage and dosage, uh, you know, recommendations. So again, you know, and, and that was years before that was probably what Tim 2000 or so 2001, 2002. The, that might've been around 2006 or seven when they had to pay that big FDA fine, when they admitted that they falsely marketed about the non-addictive nature of their drugs. And then, right. you know, and you've got the, the, like a double, the double causation issue on the warning too, because they can, you know, we asked the doctors, you know, were you aware of this? Were you aware of this? Well, yes. And then the, the question is, well, what could we have done other than what we did? You know, we told the doctor, you know, the warning isn't to the patient. The warning is to the doctor. And and the doctor is familiar with the information in the package insert. So, yeah. you know, it, he it admitted was, he knew it was addictive. You know, I think the big the biggest thing was we just really wanted when we started digging into this, and looking at how widespread, I mean, we read what was in the newspapers, but then when we started reading the articles and, and figuring out how, how extensive this was and, and how long it had been going on, it had been going on 10 years, you know, before we got involved in this case and the, the devastation and the numbers were crazy. Like the, when we were in the middle of the case, I think in the preceding four or five years, it was 30,000 people a year were dying from prescribed opioid overdoses. In other words, 30,000 people a year dying from opioids that were prescribed to them by, by a doctor. And, you know, we looked at this and it really became bigger than, than Brian and Michelle. You know, if, if right. we went in the courtroom, I think, and, and made it just about our clients, which I mean, it's their case, it should be about them. I don't think we get the result that we got. I mean, we really wanted to make it about what it should have been about. And it's about our clients, but it's also about you know, the environment that had been created. And we really wanted to, you know, as Tim mentioned early in, in, in the podcast, um, we, we looked into this and we hadn't found a single case in the country where anybody had filed suit 
for an individual addicted to opioids where they sued the doctor. It just, I, and and I, to, I, this, to this day, I don't I'm know. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but, but I, you know, I am interested in how, no, um, you know, both, I think it took you all a lot of courage to take the case and pursue it this way. Um, but I think also, I was also curious as to how the Coons themselves sort of realized they might have a case or that, or, or, or went about seeking legal representation, knowing, as we've talked about, they didn't have at least some of the more main forms of damages, right? He didn't lose his job. He didn't die. Um, and also given what they had been through, I mean, it's, it's fantastic that they did find you all to pursue this for them, but I'm kind of interested if you got any sense from them about how they, how they were sort of put on to the fact that they might have a case here. Well, I, that the, there was a lawyer that referred the case to us. That's a good friend of John. So I, I can't speak to their initial conversations, but I think we had previously represented Michelle as like one of the plaint beneficiaries or plaintiffs in a wrongful death case. Um, so I think she knew who she was, but uh, you know, I, I don't know what made them decide to talk to okay. the lawyer who referred us the case and come talk to us in the beginning, other than, you know, they really felt like their trust in this doctor had been betrayed and he ruined their family, like ruined their lives. And I mean, wasn't there a pharmacy that refused to fill, to, to refill? That happened, to, I mean, happened it, a couple times. Yeah, a couple Pharmacies times. Pharmacies called in with concerns. And, and the like, other thing too, when, when Brian was in, was in uh, rehab, everybody, everybody he talked to were just every, you know, healthcare provider he came into, into contact with, when he was trying to get help and after he was away from Dr. Walden, every one of them was shocked. I mean, just shocked by the, the amount. They didn't believe him, the, the amount of opioids that he'd been given. And I think that had a, 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 you know, that had a big part in him. You know, he and Michelle, you know, Got looking it. for somebody, a lawyer to look into it for. You know, it was all the other hell. You, you don't see that in med mal cases. You guys probably know, you know, even if even if a doctor messed up or, you know, or the, the care was substandard. You rarely, it's rare that you get a subsequent treater to speak up. And then right. when they do, they don't go on the record and you want, you know, want to take their deposition. But here, hands down, everybody that he talked to was like, this is, this is crazy. You know, this should never, ever happen. And everybody told him the same thing. And that was, mm -hmm. I can't believe you're still mm -hmm. alive. That's, that's what he heard from everybody. Yeah, you know, I, I, around that time, you know, you heard a lot of uh, various states, I guess, were getting involved into prosecuting what they called pill mills. Was there ever any type of investigation into uh, how many opioids were coming out of this practice? Um, no. I mean, we, we questioned the doctor about how many patients. Uh, this, you know, those pill mills are like usually single, single doctor, solo right. practice. There's lines around the block. This is, you know, a rather large and well-respected institutional healthcare provider. St. Louis University has its own hospital, a lot of doctors. Um, I, this doctor said he had five other patients on close to, you know, these doses. We actually had another case against the same doctor after this one um, with another patient. Um, so I... I we never got the impression this was like a pill mill situation. This was just like a, this particular doctor at this, you know, well-respected institutional local healthcare provider just was one of the things that I noticed uh, right. in the, in the defense opening that sounded um, 
well, it's very familiar in a MedMal case, but I thought was kind of an interesting strategy in this case was to, it sounded like part of the complications that Mr. Kuhn had suffered as, as a consequence of, of his addiction, like erectile dysfunction and some other things, it sounded like they were maybe almost blaming on pre-existing conditions or um, on the fact that he had, um, he had Hodgkin's and that, that they were sort of suggesting that maybe the surgeries that he, the, the subsequent back surgeries that he needed um, that turned out to be for these underlying conditions that were masked by the narcotics that wasn't really clear, like if those surgeries had really helped his pain. I, I just was interested as to how that actually played out at trial. <laughs> um, you know, Brian had had, he'd had other health problems and he had quite a few other health problems that he, he thought were probably all related to the narcotics. And we figured out you know, there, we weren't going to be able to prove that and there wasn't evidence to support it. So we didn't submit them. I think they were just trying to muddy the waters because they, the amounts were so crazy. You know, Brian had survived a battle with cancer in his 20s and he'd been given a second chance at life. Um, but I mean, high amounts of opioids definitely contribute to cause things like erectile dysfunction. Um, I don't know. I, I, I felt like with some of it, they were just trying to muddy the waters, uh, yeah. but it just didn't. I, I didn't. I don't think it landed. I'll tell you one of the most effective things you did when talking about damages was explaining how uh, opioids uh, cause constipation and what he had to go through because of that, and how how I mean it was very visual and you know and it really brought it home. It's. I mean, it's it's tough to listen to. Like it yeah. makes you squirm. Um, but that's a very very well known like number one side effect that almost everybody deals with to the point. Yeah. I mean, it's a graphic image of what he was doing to try to get some out of his body. And it makes you go, Oh my God. Like it, yeah. it gives you a little bit of a glimpse into his life. Right. Right. What was the mention? There was some mention of maybe they were, they were looking at some studies that, that talked about genetic disorders. Like they were almost suggesting he had some sort of genetic disorder. What was that? Uh, what was that about? Well, that was not supposed to come in because we had a motion in limine about that as they had not gotten any doctor to say and give an opinion within a reasonable degree of medical certainty. Brian had a genetic disorder that allowed him to be given these high doses. They had to try to come up with something for why it's okay for this person to be given these crazy high doses. And, you know, our motion was granted. They weren't supposed to do it, but they still like kind of suggest that they asked about mm. those kinds of disorders, even though they weren't supposed to do it. Um, but I think it just kind of got lost. I mean, we were able to show he had a genetic test done that didn't say he had any kind of genetic problems. Right. Right. Well, and that sort of blows up in the defense's face because now it looks like they're trying to mislead everybody. Right. Right. Well, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you, you've explained to us some about damages. Um, and as I mentioned early on, there was a, a, a $1.4 million award for Brian and a $1.2 million award for Michelle. But I also want to talk about uh, the punitive damage award. I mean, you, you know, you've talked about how St. Louis University was a well-respected institution. Uh, talk about how you got the jury to the point of, uh, of giving a punitive damages award uh, against a, 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 an institution like that. Well, I stole a prior punitive closing <laughs> argument from John. Is what right. I did. Good. Yeah, that, that always works well. <laughs> <laughs> Good student. 
Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, you know, they tried to say, look, we get it, even though they didn't get it. So it was, we were literally arguing, this is not just about this defendant, read the jury instruction, punish and deter this defendant and others. And you need to send a message from coast to coast saying this stops punitive damages are stopping damages. You need to put a stop to this so that next time you hear a story on the news about, you know, some some, uh, you know, 20 year old or some father or mother succumbing to this as part of this epidemic, you can look yourself in the mirror and know you did something to try to change things. And this jury did change things. I mean, they, they did. Um, we were telling them you can make a difference. And I think they took it to heart as an opportunity to do that. And they did. I mean, we've ever since this happened, I hear constant stories about seminars being given all across the country to healthcare providers um, about this case specifically and what happened and how you need to, you, you need to be more careful in your practices and institutional healthcare providers and hospitals in putting in place better policies and procedures and oversight to stop this from happening. I know the local SLU in St. Louis after this case put together policies and procedures for oversight for it and, and, um, I think it started to make a big difference nationwide. Yeah. Were you That's able great. to talk um, in, in Missouri? Are you allowed to talk to the jury uh, after? And if so, did you talk to this jury? John and I didn't, but another, he's a lawyer in our office now, but he was a law clerk at the time, talked to one of them as he was coming out. Uh, and he told, he told, he told this lawyer at our office, first of all, there was never a, like everybody agreed right away that the defendants were negligent and caused damages. Um, they just just like debated about what the percentages of fault should be. Uh, and then for punitive. So we had two stages in the trial. Um, first, it's compensatory damages and just yes or no. Should there be punitives? Yeah. And then we get to do a little bit more evidence in another brief closing argument where John just presented the, the net worth of um, SLU the last two years. And then I did a five minute, another close. Uh, and then they went back and they were only out for, I don't know, 10 more minutes. And they came back with $15 million. And apparently um, the discussion that was had was, uh, well, what did I, I asked for $37 million in punitives. I said, look, you gave 37,000 pills. At X amount per pill, that's that's $37 million. Um, some people wanted to give that. Some people wanted to give much less than we got. And it's because they were worried about if the doctor was going to have to personally pay some of it. And that if we didn't have the doctor individually named, mm. maybe it would have been a bigger uh, a bigger reward. Um, but that was just one person. Other than that, right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember anything else. Uh, one thing I want to ask you about, you've seen some of the post-trial motions, and um, it looks like in, so in Missouri, on a medical malpractice case, you can't get in post-judgment interest, or, um, and, you, and it looks like, does it, it have to be paid out over time, periodic payments? You, in MedMal, you cannot get post-judgment interest, which I've always thought is ridiculous. Um, that encourages frivolous appeals and to drag them out. Uh, but that's just the way it is. Um, then for future damages, there is a statute, especially like life care plans, 
um, that they get wow. to pay them out in incremental payments over time. Uh, and if something happens wow. to your plaintiff and they die, those payments stop. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's just, it's just tort reform. Now in this case, we didn't have any future medical costs. Um, it was just pain and suffering. And most of it was given for past as opposed to future. And it's really the judge's discretion for non-economic damages. If he's going to do periodic payments and he, he, he said, no, there's no point to doing that. They might've decided all those future period, like, non-economic damages are for the next six months. We have no um, idea. One thing I, that right. we were talking about this earlier, right. but I feel like this is something that comes up in cases, especially when people go through tragedy. And I'm wondering how you all approached it. I know that you acknowledged it in opening that by the time you were trial, Brian and Michelle were separated. Um, I was wondering if you were worried that, that the jury would hold that against either of them for not uh, basically still being together, especially with a with a loss of consortium claim, or if you thought it actually strengthened the claim. I, I you know, I thought it. I don't think it hurt us. It may have strengthened the claim, and it just we the nature it. of the case. I mean, if you look, if you look at what she went through, what the couple went through. I don't know that anybody would be critical of somebody leaving that situation. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's my thought on it, Tim. Yeah, we embraced it. I mean, when I first heard, I was worried about it. Um, And if they got divorced before trial, whether she could still have her consortium claim. But they were not divorced before trial. They ended up getting divorced later. But we really embraced it and made it the heart of our damages argument. Yeah, Mm -hmm. this destroys American families. And this is one of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I've had cases where my clients got divorced and, and I, I've addressed it as it's a part of tragedy. When when tragedy strikes a family, um, it sometimes it destroys the family. And uh, and that's part of, you know, what the defendants did in the case. Um, but, um, well, guys, this has been uh, just a great uh, conversation. And, and uh, I, I just want to congratulate you on a great result. Is there anything that we haven't told our listeners about, about the, the Kuhn versus St. Louis University and, and Walden case you want to make sure uh, that they've heard about? No, I think we pretty well covered we've covered it all. Well, thank you so much. Let me uh, let me just remind everybody that we've been talking about the Brian and Michelle Kuhn versus St. Louis University and Walden case, which resulted in a uh, $2.6 million compensatory verdict, which uh, 67% was apportioned to the defendants, and then a $15 million punitive verdict, so a total verdict of $17.6 million. And our guests have been John Simon and Tim Cronin. Uh, John and Tim are both at the Simon Law Firm in St. Louis, Missouri. And you can look them up at simonlawpc.com. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, 
or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>